0: Hey folks! Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Agronomy Highlights. Dwayne, this is uh, this is going to be an exciting one.
1: I am. I'm very excited for today's episode, Joey. We have a pretty famous farmer from the Virginia Mountain area. I'm going to let him introduce himself. Tell us, uh, tell the guests a, a little bit about yourself.
2: Sure. Well, I'm Joel Salatin, and our our family uh, owns Polyface Farm here in the Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. Which is in the western part of the state. The valley is 80 miles long and about 20 miles wide. And if you know your history, it was uh, it was called the breadbasket of the Confederacy during the Civil War. And it's where uh, the the lion's share of grain of of really high quality grain production went on. In fact, Cyrus McCormick invented the reaper in 1837 in his blacksmith shop, which is about Ten miles from our house uh, in 1837. That's the uh, supposedly the official start of the industrial revolution was the invention of the reaper because that got rid of the scythe as the you know as the har- as the, the harvesting uh, tool. So you know we uh, we came here in 1961. Uh, I, mean, I was only four years old when we came. So I'm second generation here. Mom and Dad never made a living from the farm, but Dad was a uh, was a a tax accountant. Uh, His degree was in business administration. He got that on the GI Bill after uh, flying in in the Navy in World War II. He was a Navy World War II vet. And then uh, mom was a health and phys ed teacher in a local high school. And those off-farm jobs paid for the mortgage. You know, you've heard that story, I'm sure, before. And so it took about uh, 10 or 12 years uh, up into the, you know, the early 70s to get that mortgage paid off. By that time, you know, I'm I'm uh, a teenager, and um, I got my first chickens when I was 10 from uh, Sears and Roebuck catalog and uh, started a little egg egg business and uh, started selling them to people at church and people in the community in the neighborhood. And uh, then went to a uh, kind of a precursor of today's farmers market. It was called the the curb market uh, in Stanton, and it, it started in the in the 1930s had, during the depression to let farmers have a an outlet for their food. And uh, by the time I joined in 1970, whatever two, as a, as a young teen, uh, I joined the 4-H club to join the market. And they had a, an agreement at the time between inspection service and extension sell it the curb market. If you joined the extension clubs, uh, you had to join the, uh, the home demonstrations club or later called as the extension homemakers clubs, if you remember those. And, uh, and of course, they looked at me. Well, what are, what are you going to join? I said, well, you know, I could join the 4-H. I said, that, that'll, that'll work. That's good enough. And so I joined the 4-H. And and what they had was a was an agreement between the inspection service and the extension service that if vendors joined uh, the extension service, that meant that they were they were not fleet mavericks. You know they were they were ready to listen to whatever the latest science and the latest thing coming out of the extension service. So we could sell cottage cheese and buttermilk and butter. We could home we could home dress beef, home dress chickens, rabbits, pigs. Sell uh, home cured bacon, field field dressed, uh, and so we jumped on that. And I did that throughout my high school uh, career. Had a big garden, and we had our couple milk cows. Uh, we butchered uh, beef in the in the field. Took those big old round steaks down there fresh. You know, looking back, we realized we were probably about fifth ahead of our time. You know, this was the early seventies. And um, it, you know, it wasn't until, you know, into the late 80s, probably, that the true kind of local food, you know, the local, the local war movement uh, kicked in. And, and frankly, people started getting concerned about, you know, chemicals and things in their food. And, but, 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 you know, I, I, I grew up on that. Uh, there were three vendors at the time, two elderly matrons and me, and I wouldn't take the education from those two, uh, those two surrogate grandmas for anything. They, they taught me how to how to merchandise, how to message, how to talk with customers, how to display things, how to how to make signage, price points, all those kinds of things. Uh, And uh, and and it was just wonderful. I was only one in the family that was that was uh, what keen to do that. And so when I went to college, uh, we shut that stand down. And by the time I came home, those two elderly ladies had left. The market was closed and grandfathering was was no longer possible. That, you know that direct marketing really cut my teeth on it. And so you know as we as we developed uh, into this kind of you know grass-based livestock venture, all those early lessons were were very valuable in, in, in the marketing aspect.
1: I have a question about the farm name, Poly, Polyface Farm. Can you tell us about how that came about? September 24, so so after college,
2: Dad had always asked a question how do i make a living on this farm the farm was it was uh, about 100 acres open and 450 in woodland so there was a there was a lot of forest and it was about 100 acres open and so it's a small farm and it was it was a it was a rock pile gullied it was the armpit of the community we we planted a lot of trees we did a lot of conservation early on you know putting brush in gullies and and little you know rock dams to make terraces and and uh try to you know conservation stuff you know, he he never was able to punch through that, you know, truly making a living on the farm, worked in town like so many uh, part-timers. We just kind of had this, you know, as a glorified homestead on the side, great place to work. He, he was very visionary, very experimental, started experimenting with, you know, movable infrastructure and electric fencing and all sorts of things. I get home from college, I have the same question. Got a little farm, How, you know, I want to make a full-time living. How do we do that? And so, you know, we didn't know yet. And so, I, I, uh, I had a, a flair for, you know, writing and communication. So, I got on to the local uh, daily newspaper as a as an investigative reporter. I'd actually worked there weekends during high school. So they liked me and and said, as soon as you get out of school, just come on back and and we'll take you. So, um, so I had a nice end there. So I lived at home. So now I'm doing the town commute. You know, the the part time farm gig. And how do I, you know, how do I, how do I get there? We, uh, Teresa and I, um, had saved up enough to live for two years. We, we got married. We lived in the, in the attic of the farmhouse and we got, we got enough that we thought we could live on for two years. We were living cheaply. We drove a, a $50 car. We lived on $300 a month. Uh, we, we, we grew all of our own food. We have a wood stove, so we didn't have any heat bills. We had no mortgage. You know, I always said if we could, if we could figure out how to grow toilet paper and uh, and Kleenex, we could pull the plug on society, you know? So we, we were able to save up, and I decided to pull the plug on outside employment and, and take the leap and come back to the farm full-time, thinking, well, you know, it might not go. We might run through the nest egg, but you know I, I could go wash dishes at a at a restaurant you know and and make a living i'm not i'm not, not afraid to you know uh, be a laborer or whatever even though i had a college education I'm I'm out there, um, you know. So so we said, well, let us start up, Dad. Remember, Dad was an accountant, so he said, well, we need to, we need to start a, a business name in order, you know, uh, to have a, a corporation for tax reasons. So we said, well, you know, uh, let's be interface. You know, the interfacing of of open land, forest land, and 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 water, the interfacing environments. We were big on that. So we submitted to the state corporation commission, and there was already an interface in Virginia. Uh, So we couldn't be interfaced. I'm sitting there milking a cow, you know, uh, milking our Guernsey cow. And he walks in with the, you know, all the FCC or the the, um, uh, state corporation, SCC, uh, said we can't we can't be interfaced. And I mean, it was just like a stroke from, you know, from from heaven. I said, well, if we can't be interfaced, bummer, let's be polyface. Uh, Let's be many faced. And uh, because we knew we were going to want to do numerous, you know, numerous economic enterprises, and dad was going to run his accounting business through the, through the, the deal, too. And so, uh, so we said, okay, let's be many-faced, the farm of many-faces. So we said, we'll be the, we'll the many-faced farm, polyface, and uh, it stuck. And uh, I, I walked out of that newspaper office and, um, and never looked back.
0: I love hearing the background of how everything came to be. Um, I wish Sears was still around so I could get some chickens of my own. (laughs) And uh, I I love hearing about your, you know, past experience, uh, you know, with 4-H and extension, I guess we're kind of bringing that uh, full circle today, but the the history that you were given of how interface became polyface and it's, you know, this multifaceted approach to farming, I think really transitions us well into this next question. So Um, You obviously have a a very complex operation, right? You're not just growing grain corn or something. I know research that I've done, you know, several different types of of livestock going on. Um, So can you kind of just give us a rundown of of that complexity of the richness, the multi-face, you know, nature of, of your operation there? There's a lot of moving parts. Uh,
2: it, it revolves around grass-based livestock. So the, the, the core is grass-based livestock. We have, we have beef that we, you know, grass finish. Uh, we have uh, pigs that are raised on pasture and uh, some of them are fattened on on acorns in the woods. Uh, we, we have uh, broilers, uh, meat chickens that we raise on pasture, eggs that we raise on pasture. Uh, and if you're looking for numbers, uh, we're running around, a thousand head of cattle uh, running. We're, we're doing about uh, seven to eight hundred hogs a year, uh, somewhere between 20,000, 20,000 broiler chickens a year. We run about uh, 3,500 to 4,000 laying hens. So right now we're getting uh, close to 200 dozen eggs a day. And, uh, and then we run, uh, last year, I think we raised about 1,500 turkeys and we raise uh rabbits that's a kind of a, a, a side deal it's just a, a um you know we probably sell i'm gonna say fewer than a thousand though we sell uh you know 30 or 40 maybe up to 50 lambs a year and uh and ducks we sell duck eggs as well uh, so that that's kind of the livestock and then we have a sawmill so uh we sell we sell lumber um, boards so people come here and get and get custom cut you know lumber for their projects and uh, we sell a, a fair amount of firewood for people that have you know wood stoves firewood of course left over from the tops of the you know of the uh, the lumber and so you know those are the those are the main enterprises we don't really sell vegetables and produce and things uh we you know we, we don't have that but I will tell you this we have a very now large uh kind of what we call an info, infotainment component uh, in that we you know we we conduct seminars we do um, what we call lunatic tours we do about eight or nine of those during the season I'm of course the you know the lunatic uh, the lunatic farmers kind of my handle and so we we do these tours we've just built a large uh three to four hundred seat uh, pavilion uh, outdoor kind of pavilion where we now do 6 to 7 gatherings a year. So these are both other organizations that want to that want to have a any uh, you know a conference here or a couple you know some some of them we do a couple of them we do ourselves as as hosts of a conference that we want to host. So you know we're doing those as well and of course that brings uh, lots of people and and of course we feed feed them. So we're doing whatever ten or twelve thousand covers a year, and don't even have a restaurant. So uh, you know it, it it does add up. And we're running you know somewhere in the neighborhood of fifteen thousand, maybe fifteen thousand visitors a year. So the 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 people the people component is uh, is pretty substantial now.
1: You, know, you just mentioned the people component, and that brought me to something that I wrote down early on, in what you were talking about. You mentioned going to the market, interacting with customers, talking with people, learning merchandising. Um, it all comes back to me to to customer service and building superior customer service and learning how to communicate with those customers. And being able to do that, I think, is something special for a farmer to have. You know, there are folks that are totally fine and complacent to be in the barn with the cows, or there are other folks that are, Look, I, I want nothing to do with the folk people end of things and I'm going to focus on producing those crops. But I think in order to capitalize on some of these opportunities as as farmers, we have to learn how to deal with people, basically, and, and learn those customer service skills. And it sounds like you've kind of mastered that part of it well
2: i'm i'm not sure i've mastered it but we've been at it a long time and uh and have made enough mistakes to uh, to learn some of the things not to do and have enough successes to know some of the things that 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 work the main thing is that you have to um you know you have to love people and you have to you have to put attention on what you're producing so that you can feel very comfortable standing behind it. This is, this is the, you know, this is the best or, or whatever it's, you know, that it's, 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 uh, it's it's good differentiated quality. And, you know, I, and I think, I think that this kind of, you know, direct marketing, niche marketing, branded, branded marketing, I mean, you can call it any number of things. I think, I think that the opportunity through the internet now with uh with electronic aggregation and electronic shopping carts has made this uh uh the e- easier than it's ever been i mean when we started you know it was snail mail and phone calls and i'd come in you know worked outside all day i'd come in in the evening and i'd have 2 hours of phone calls you know at night to talk with customers to you know pedal stuff get orders and things like that today you know you've got 10,000 people on an email list you make a little a little, you know, blurb, hit a button and boom, it goes to 10,000 people and the orders come in. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable what electronic aggregation, you know, and internet, internet uh, uh, shopping carts have done in, in this direct marketing space, you know, whether it's, whether it's uh, it's beyond local or even just local, I mean this 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 is still an efficient way to communicate, even with your neighbors if they're only a hundred yards away. It's still an efficient way to communicate.
1: Absolutely. So if there's a person out there that's a regular cash grain farmer, um, and I know a lot of what you talked about had had a livestock component but if they're interested in incorporating any of those elements in the type of a system that you've got going on there at Polyface farm how would you recommend they start
2: yeah well there's there are numerous uh, numerous kind of protocols i think for you know for transitioning or or experimenting and i'm a we we experiment here all the time i'm a big believer in experimentation on on farm experimentation and uh I'm a big believer in embryonic, embryonic experiments. Don't jump off the cliff. Don't jeopardize the place. You know, uh, what what do you think might be helpful to you? What do you think you might be interested in? And then ask, well, how small can I try this? You know, too often, I think in, in modern business, we always, somebody has an idea and the first question is, oh, how big can it be? but we always ask how small can it be because it's in smallness that you work out the kinks and and get your you know get your protocols refined so you know are you do you think that a an egg business would ever be good for you well don't don't get 500 layers get 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 20 you know uh, enough to feed you and some neighbors and and play with it and the thing about grain farmers is I think it's kind of a, an axiom that every pound of grain put through an animal on your farm doubles its value. So if, if you're wanting to double value of your grain crop, putting it through animals is one of the best ways to value add that grain and, and move it to another place. And then if you take that animal and you direct market it, now you've spun that wheel yet again, and you become a price maker instead of a price taker, and that's, that, that's a place. And, 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 and if, I, if I could just riff on that just a moment, I think, I think it's really interesting that a, a complex, multi-species, relationally-oriented uh, farm has built-in resilience that, that has both emotional, ecolog- well, all three, emotional, ecological, and economic value. And goodness, we've really seen that here uh, lately with the the war in Ukraine, with fertilizer prices going up by what, you know at least double, sometimes four hundred percent. And but but if all that if all that grain were going through on farm animals, and so that manure were going back on the fields, now suddenly you close those loops. One of our one of our problems in in American agriculture, I think, is that we have, we have separated uh, what historically were connected components and we've separated those. And and I, I you know, I, I get simplification, I get specialization, you know, I get those kinds of things, but when, when, when transportation becomes expensive or when there's some, some sort of, of, um, of, of disruption within the system, you know, it, it sounds, it sounds okay to well, I'm just going to grow this, and I'm just going to grow that one thing. But it, at the end of the day, uh, when you're only doing one component, it puts you into a real hyper dependency on inputs and 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 markets. You know, when when Putin when Putin invaded Ukraine and fertilizer went up on our farm, we it didn't even it didn't affect us at all because we've never bought fertilizer. Uh, what we do is we do large scale composting. We do the we do the you know the grass based. Now we do buy a lot of grain, but we don't buy grain out of Ukraine either. We buy grain from local farmers, uh, GMO free, genetically modified organism free. But these are all local farmers that we buy it from, and and we actually you know we actually uh, uh, start uh, helped a helped a, a nearby farm s- uh, re you know restart a nineteen fifties uh, cobwebbed uh, uh, feed mill, and uh, back back you know when GMOs came in back 20 years ago, and that feed mill now employs several people, and they are the go-to GMO-free feed mill in the entire Mid-Atlantic region. You can create your your collaborators. You can cre- create your team. Doesn't have to be on your farm, but uh, but but the more we can we can close those loops and close those circles i think the more resilience we build into our system and 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 the whole covid and now the ukraine war those things have brought out the benefit of having a a smaller multifaceted ship the point is when things go crazy when you're when you're navigating rocky shoals you don't want to be in an aircraft carrier. You want to be in a speedboat. So I like being in a speedboat. We can adapt. We can change. You know, uh, I mean, the, the slaughterhouse we use, the slaughterhouse we use is not 2,000 people in a great big facility. It's a neighborhood slaughterhouse that has, you know, 23 people. And and it, it never bobbled during COVID. You know, uh, it, it wasn't, it, it didn't drive human resources Nuts with people! Oh no, who's going to sue us because we didn't have the right protocol or uh, catch the right person in quarantine? Blah blah blah. No, it, you know, it's a small community. We were we we're a family, and so as 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 we as, as we scale, then the question is: Well, well, all that sounds you know well and good, but how does it scale? Well, it scales. It scales by duplication, not by centralization. So rather than having 300 mega processing facilities funneling all the food to the nation, we have 300,000, 50 employee or less, you know, neighborhood oriented uh, processing facilities that funnel the, the food to the nation.
0: I like what you say about, you know, how these smaller operations, they definitely have the ability to be more diverse and and nimble and you mentioned scale. So much of what we deal with typical row crop commodity grain situations is trying to achieve that economy of scale, right? And I guess both types or styles of operation, you know, they have their pros and cons, but it's certainly more challenging to, you know, yeah. take the steering wheel of that big cruise ship and and get it to turn any, any one direction. But yeah, lot, lots of valuable information there and you know, I just had a gentleman call me today uh, interested in using a, a certain soil amendment and I kind of gave him similar advice to you said you know don't be afraid of on-farm experimentation I probably wouldn't apply it to you know all all of your acres but if you want right. to try it on try it on one acre you know take a soil test before and after see how it pans out but um, I think having an open mind and and diversifying your operation a little bit and certainly help certainly help uh, with the resiliency aspect. Now on, on your website, I took a look and I found the, the Polyface guiding principles. And um, for sake of time, unfortunately, we won't be able to dig into all of them, but there's a few that I really want to touch on. So you got transparency, the grass-based component, individuality, community, following nature's template and earthworms and and I would be remiss if we didn't if we didn't dig into earthworms so whenever we talk about uh soil health you know luckily we're kind of trying to um you know get these practices to be more popular of course to you know reduce erosion and grow mm-hmm. the levels of soil organic matter and you know prevent you know environmental degradation and and all that stuff but you know to just <laughs> To just get us started off here could, could you talk about you know what what are earthworms doing for you at Polyface how do they increase the value of your your operation there
2: oh my uh earthworms you know at, at the end of the day we say we're actually we're actually raising earthworms that's our that's our number one uh a number one product because if the earthworms are happy probably everything else is happy including you know the the azotobacter and the protozoa and the nematodes and the actinomycetes and the mycelium and the mold and in the fungi and all that all right so earthworms uh the thing about earthworms is if you want to cut right down to the chase it is that they practice, uh, and I know this is uh, anti-science, so I, uh, I hesitate to use the word, but uh, transmutation, where they almost take take something and, and 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 transmute it to something else. So think about this: an earthworm goes through, let's say, you know, a pound of material, and out its back end, it excretes a pound of material, and the pound of material it excretes has uh what is it you know three times the calcium it has four times the nitrogen uh, seven times the potassium 11 times the the the, the pot the phosphorus um, it, it, it 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 synergizes that material now if if it took in a pound and excreted half a pound you'd say okay well it's just it's concentrating the material but no it actually takes in a pound and excretes a pound that is somehow way richer than what it took in. In, in the same uh weight and you know what as much as we know about things and we've landed on the moon and we've we've you know we've sent uh uh probes to Mars nobody knows how an earthworm does that nobody knows the the actual chemistry within that alimentary canal that enables that earthworm to so synergize what it takes in so so what we want to do, and, and and that's all a part of, so you say, well, my goodness, you know, that much more calcium, all that. Well, the fact is that that when things decompose in the soil, you know, what, what feeds an earthworm is organic matter. And earthworms like to be, they like their food on top of their heads. They don't like tillage. Uh, they, they, they don't like to be tilled in. They, they like stuff on top of their heads. Think about how Leaves fall off a tree. You know, grass falls over in the field. Nature doesn't till. Nature nature turns organic matter, tor- turns biomass brown uh, and, and drops it on the soil. Or it goes through a, a, a stomach of a, or a gizzard of a bird or a stomach of an animal and comes out in manure. The point is, it's still on the ground. So the earthworm grabs that, takes it down in the soil, excretes, uh, um, takes a saliva and and dissolves rocks, and and brings that mineral up to the top of the soil and deposits it. Uh, in general, we believe that, uh, and I'm I'm not just talking in hot air here. I mean, I've got a shelf full of books here behind me that corroborates that that the soil has enough biology in it to rectify deficiencies. If it gets enough organic matter, if it gets enough carbon, if it gets enough biomass, it will rectify whatever weaknesses it has. You know, when when uh, when organic matter decomposes, it gives off carbon dioxide. So imagine the soil. Um, yeah, you guys, I really appreciate your it, it's clear from your questions here that you're, you're you're into the soil. I love that. All right. So so uh, so in, I like to think of the soil as as a as a as a cathedral. A cathedral that's that that ideally is more space than matter. You know, you go into a cathedral, and and what strikes you as awesome is not the stuff; it's the space. And good soil has aggregate. It, it good soil actually should have more space than stuff. And this space is where is 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 like rooms is like a big chocolate cake where uh, stuff happens. As organic matter decomposes, it exudes carbon dioxide, which comes up and contacts H2O, water, and CO2 plus H2O makes carbonic acid. Now, if I take a, if I if I uh, went out to your field and, and grabbed a rock and put the rock on the table, said, I wonder how much molybdenum, boron, selenium, uh, zinc is in this rock. We could treat it with sulfuric acid. We could treat it with hydrochloric acid you know, to, to, to break out those, those minerals and see what's in there. You know what the best mineral, you know what the best acid is to break out those minerals from that rock? Carbonic acid, carbonic acid. So our problem with minerals most of the time is not a lack of mineral. The rocks are there. They're as good as they were a thousand years ago. The problem is we don't have enough decomposition going on to make enough carbonic acid to break the minerals out of the rocks. And we've seen that here on our farm. Like I said, when we came here in 1961, I mean, you'd have thought we were growing uh, dewberries, brambles, and uh, and broom sedge, you know, as a crop. We never applied lime. We didn't apply calcium. We didn't apply any fertilizer. We just started composting and applying uh, 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 basically a wood chip, com- uh, uh, wood chip based compost with animal manure. And, and, and guess what? All of those calcium deficient soils all over. Now it was, it, it wasn't, it wasn't immediate. All right. Uh, uh, don't get, it wasn't immediate, but it was over, over a, a few years. Now there's no brambles, no dewberries, no broom sedge, and soil tests say that we're complete saturated with calcium. We don't need any mineral whatsoever, and we never applied minerals to these deficient soils. What we did do was apply food for earthworms and the worms and the other biology fixed the soil once they got fed enough on top of their heads.
1: Awesome information on how you guys kind of transformed that uh, that soil structure. Like you said, it's not something that I can happen over uh, overnight. This this takes this takes right. time, right? It does. So, so you talked about uh, the livestock-based system that you have and the the different enterprises, whether it's beef or hogs or broilers, layers, turkey, you name it. But you mentioned the words grass-based and grass-fed system. So can you talk to us about the benefits that you see of a grass-fed system? As opposed to uh, one that is primarily grain fed.
2: Yes, uh, there are a lot of benefits, and so but but at the outset, I need to be very, uh, very honest with everybody. We do buy a lot of grain, as I said earlier on the program. But we, we buy GMO free grain from you know from nearby farmers. One of the um, one of the reasons that livestock exists, animals exists on the planet is because they are, they are um, able to distribute fertility. So, you know, if you think about it, if there were no animals, gravity would always move biomass, minerals, rocks, leaves, always move it downhill into the valleys. So, so the, the hilltops would become infertile and denuded, as well as hillsides, and the only fertility would be in the valleys. The reason for an, one of the reasons for animals is to take that that valley gravitationally accumulated uh, um, fertility in the valley and move it up onto the top of the ridge and the predator prey relationship makes herbivores, birds okay they want to go on high ground so they can look out and see who's going to you know come and eat them and so they naturally want to eat in the valley and move to high ground and, and basically transport that valley fertility to the high ground and so uh so we don't we don't apologize for buying grain from farms downstream from us that are in alluvial plains and you know loamy low ground we're bringing that 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 fertility that grain up onto our higher you know we're right up against the mountain here we're bringing it up into the highlands which is simply a uh, a massage if you will of of the historic you know animal uh, animal plant cycle rotation Um, now that being said we do want everything out on pasture, including the omnivores, because chickens eat a lot of grass. So do pigs. Of course, herbivores, that's, that's all they need. And, um, and, and the, the, the beauty of the perennial as opposed to the annual is that the energy cycle is different. Most of the plants in nature are, are perennials. And the reason for that is because perennials take solar energy and and pump it into the ground to maintain a a root mass whereas an annual takes stored you know soil uh equity if you will stored soil equity and transports it to a seed uh, a big um you know a, a watermelon a squash you know when the, when the veg- when the vegans say well Yeah, if everything was as efficient as you know, as as watermelons, yeah, they want to get rid of all the livestock, right? We we need we need more efficiency of of vegetables. Well, if everything was efficient as efficient as a cucumber and a squash, we wouldn't have any soil because all of those plants are extractive, and that's why all the historic historic rotations were, you know, like seven-year rotations, four acres of pasture, you know, then three acres of crops, four acres of pasture. Why? Because it took a couple of years for the crops to deplete what the perennial had stockpiled in the soil, the soil uh, uh, organic matter equity account. And and so the perennial, and fortunately, back in the day, draft power, uh, you know, ox and mule and all that, they're all herbivores. And so one third of every farm was committed to producing its energy. One third of every farm, if you had a if you had a ninety-acre farm, thirty acres was used to, for your energy stock, to 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 fuel your you know your draft power. Well, once petroleum chemical fertilizers came in, that that boundary, that, that line was able to be crossed. We don't need any animal power anymore. We've got mechanical power, and so eliminate the perennial, eliminate that grass rotation. We don't need it anymore, and we can now plow and plant mono, uh, uh, you know, uh, annuals fence row to fence row. And we took out that 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 kind of break that was on our ability to um, you know to to destroy the soil faster. And so, because the energy cycle is different, the perennial pumps energy into the ground the annual pulls energy out of the ground for a big seed a big a big fruit a big something and all deep soils on the planet are not under forests and they're not under bushes they're under prairies the prairies being managed by by herbivores by, by predators and prey. In in a in a, cor- in a massive choreography and birds and birds in a massive choreography, and so it, the, the the number one way to build soil is not with annuals; it's with perennials. And so we want our basis. I'm, I, I you know, I'm not opposed to growing grain, but uh, but but the foundation of an agriculture system should be the perennial. Not the annual, and when you realize that the farm bill, the farm bill only uh, incentivizes six crops, all six crops are annuals, you realize that the entire farm bill uh, incentivizes a a soil extractive system rather than a soil additive system.
0: That's a whole nother can of worms that we could get into about the farm <laughs> bill. I don't know if we have time for that today, but I, I hear you. <laughs> Uh, I think what you mentioned about those really deep soils, you know, we're always forever jealous of the Iowas and Nebraskas out there with their, you know, super high fertility mollisols. And you think about the five soil forming factors, right? You've got parent material, topography, uh, climate, time, and biota. And I think what you mentioned there is that biota piece is extremely key, right? And as well as the time, right? We're talking about thousands of years of consistent prairie Mm -hmm. vegetation with you know large undulates right you know just living and existing out there and and continuating that system and obviously it makes for uh some incredibly fertile soil so the the last guiding principle i wanted to get into here is is this community bit and i think we've already touched on it a little bit you know we talk about this concept of uh mutual interdependence and i think at this uh, point that we're at in the country right now we could probably use a little bit more togetherness and and cohesiveness and this kind of concept that you talk about of you know as opposed to having you know 300 mega systems having three hundred thousand smaller more nimble diverse interconnected systems so you know I guess can you can you just talk to us about that concept of uh of community and and how it's how it's so important.
2: So I I I think that the 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 starting point on the community is on your own farm in your own family. And and so uh you know I've I've irritated plenty of people by saying that a farm is not really sustainable until it produces two salaries from two different generations. um you know the the average farmer is now uh 60 years old and business books tell us that any any uh, economic sector in the culture where the average practitioner is over 35 is a sector in decline so we're we're a lot of years past 35 in farming and uh, i mean the, the whole the bunch of reasons for that we we don't need to go down all those reasons but certainly um, one reason is that when when young people when the hurdles to entry are so big that young people can't get in, then old people can't get out, and so both generations are stuck on the on the exit ramps. And so, uh, so e- even even on a on a relatively small farm, uh, I'm a big believer in 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 how do we how do we add a second if you're produ- if you're producing corn well maybe one of your children would like to have uh, a commercial kitchen and make cornbread. Okay. That doesn't have to be a farmer, but, uh, but you see what I'm saying? So, you know, uh, D Howard Doane wrote about this with his uh, iconic book, uh, vertical diversification, where he said, if you're, you know, if you're producing corn, how can I produce all the fertilizer for that corn? Instead of instead of buying fertilizer off the farm, can we can we produce the fertilizer on the farm? And then and then above the, the product corn, all right? Can can we value add that else? Whether it's you know alcohol or or um, you know or cornbread or or whatever, uh, you know. So so that, that vertical horizontal diversification. Well, we're raising corn. Well, how about we you know um, we we raise also we raise uh some some grapes and we raise some squash and we raise some you know some pigs along with it you know that that sort of thing you've got horizontal and vertical diversification but all of that is about building additional income streams from an existing farm I I, I you know I travel I speak all over the world and I've never been on a farm yet not a single farm including out that that has full that has maxed out its full uh resource resource um leverage opportunity in enterprises one of my most uh treasured little mementos of of my dad who died in 1988 he died young but one of the things that he did so Teresa and I had only been on the farm here for, you know, about 5 years. We were just kind of at the point where we were breathing and saying Oh, okay. I think we're gonna make it. I think we're gonna make it, like the the little engine that could. You know, I think I can. I think I can. And we we finally okay. I think we can. And uh, Dad said, let's do a little exercise here. And we we went in, and um, he said, let's imagine how many how many salaries could we produce on this little on this little farm. And we came up with twenty two salaries at that time. And at that time. We were only paying one, you know, Teresa and I, okay, all right, we're you know, we're we're making a salary. And um and, and 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 we came up with twenty-two. Most farmers are are assuming that oh, I'm maxed out, I can't do any more, you know, it's just how in the world can I do anymore? And but my my dad was all about um that there are there are all sorts of opportunities that if we're creative enough we can see other things and and uh and so we did 22 now today interestingly today we are we have about 22 to 24 salaries um coming from from our place uh and and if i did that exercise today it would probably have a hundred salaries because now we you know we we see way more opportunity we weren't thinking of you know agritourism and farm tours back at that time we were just looking at you know we could grow you know uh raspberries and strawberries and pigs and chickens and you know uh, things uh but there's always something else you can do we're we're taking some of our most interesting uh cow hides, for example we send them to florida get them tanned they come back as, as a cowhide that we can sell for 600 dollars um for you know uh, uh for a rug uh for for a cowhide rug uh you know that's that's again that's a, that's an additional value adding uh opportunity and so, um, so this community, I think, uh, starts with with a with a with a vision of the farmer that let's be creative enough to figure out how to employ me and how to employ somebody else a young person from another generation that's where it starts and then it just starts to domino from there and then you have your you know you have your your the the community that's your suppliers you know people that supply your your feed your fuel your uh you know then then you've got people that that supply maybe some of your um you know some of your intellectual stuff your you know software um those kinds of things and and all that develops into this this kind of a uh, uh, community, you know. You need you need to know who your mechanic is, uh, who's the guy that's going to fix stuff, you know. All those kinds of things are all part of developing that community. The bottom line for me is the joy of my life right now is that most farmers my age are alone. The kids are gone. There's nobody around, and they're alone. And here I am. I'm surrounded by 20 plus enthusiastic twenties and thirties year olds that are just waiting for me to tell them, I want this done, that done, the other thing done. And I can leverage my, my elder experience on youthful enthusiasm, tap into their youthful enthusiasm and they in turn learn from me. And so this keeps me young. It keeps me excited about the future because I'm surrounded by this community of energetic young people that are that that are enthusiastic about about the farm and
1: and where we're going. Fantastic definition there of of community, and the word community might dovetail into this next topic of discussion, Joel. Over the past several decades, you know, we've seen the number of people involved in ag has has really gone gone down tremendously. So in order for us to have a more local-centric, direct sale type of, a, of an ag system, it seems like we have to have a lot more people become involved. And how do we convince them that this is really the thing the thing to be doing?
2: That's such a, a profound question, Dwayne, and I thank you for asking it, because I'm convinced, based on what we see here, we, we do, one of the things that we do is we run a formal apprenticeship program and uh and before anybody says oh that's how he does he has all this this free labor let me tell you anybody that says this is free labor has not had an apprenticeship program i mean uh you know do do, do you buy do you buy sledgehammers by the six at a time do you buy gloves 50 at a time do you buy channel lock pliers a dozen at a time i mean I, i joke sometimes that we're we're um you know, we're we're creating the new iron ore field for the next millennium. You know, when when they mine out all the all the iron and they look for, you know, where's the new deposit? It's going to be right here. You know, with all the tools that got left in the field and, and lost. Uh, but we love these young people. I mean, you know, we 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 view them as our as our kids. We we do this program. But what I'm to answer the question, we get a hundred applicants every year. Uh, about a hundred applicants for our 11 spots for stewardships. So we kind of have a two-tier program. Stewardship is five months, May 1 to September 30. And then the apprenticeship is October 15 to October 15. The the apprenticeship comes out of the steward, So we have 11 stewards. And then at midpoint, they can apply for the apprenticeship if they want to stay another year. And uh, so apprenticeship is like grad school. Steward is like boot camp. Okay. And we don't call them interns because interns kind of now has a has a oh, you're not good enough to really do anything you know and so so we call them stewards, which helps to them to understand what what this is all about stewardship uh stewards and apprentices but we get we get almost a hundred applicants each year for those eleven spots. We only take eleven out of the hundred and, and and my point here is that when when oh you know nobody wants to work uh we can't get these I mean we we have to turn people away okay and 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 why is that why it, it's because for two things one is I I don't hesitate to use the p word the p word is profit okay we we've got to talk about profit and and too much of agriculture talks about production 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 and not enough about profit and i don't care how big you are how many bushels your corn is or how whatever uh I, mean, I like production as much as anybody else but production has to create profit and a lot of the, a lot of the the farms that uh, you know that we go and and buy used equipment from at their liquidation auctions are the biggest farms in the area they're not the little ones they're the big ones, and the little ones are going picking up, picking off the little, you know, all, all the, the the used equipment, you know, in the uh, in the auction, and 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 so uh, yeah, there there is something to be said for scale, and I certainly understand that, but um, but in in general, um, if, if I'm convinced, well, I think I think if you look at um, at the actual uh, actuarials in the country, forty percent of Americans, forty percent. Want to do something with their hands? They 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 want to have calluses and splinters. They, um, and I know that may shock some academics who think, you know, oh, you mean everybody doesn't want to sit in front of a of a Dilbert cubicle at the end of an expressway punching numbers into cyberspace for a, a global network? Uh, no, actually, forty percent want to do things, you know, with our hands. And so uh, I'm convinced that the that the reason that we're not seeing young people uh, come to this is because it hasn't been presented in an opportunity, an attractive opportunity that they feel like they can actually make a living. And, and the books that I've written and the seminars that I, I, I promote, look, I'm into full-time farming with a white collar salary. Why can't a farmer make enough money to take take the spouse out to dinner once in a while? Why can't the farmer uh, afford a nice suit from men's warehouse? Okay. I mean, we, we have so marginalized farmers and and of course, guidance counselors in the public school. I mean, I still have, you know, emotional scars from my last encounter with the high school uh, guidance counselor as a rising senior in high school and uh, says, well, what do you really want to do? I said, well, I want to be a farmer. You know, this is 11th grade. I want to be a farmer. She about had an apoplectic seizure on the spot. Thought I was going to have to call 911, which didn't even exist back then. But, but she said, what? Farmer, you know, she just went into this tire, Waste all those brains. Waste all that talent. Wait, you know. And, and 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 this is the mentality we have in our culture and I, I'm looking for the day when the, you know when a group of soccer moms gets around with their little you know five and six year-old progenies, and 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 one mom says well my little Mary she wants to be a farmer and all the other soccer moms say wow cool wouldn't that be neat you know um uh, and and we have marginalized agriculture there so there's there's a societal emotional element to this uh that 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 society kind of views farmers as a bunch of, you know, redneck hillbilly, you know, uh, D students, if you can't do anything else, you can go be a farmer. So you've got that kind of mystique working with us. But the second thing is too many farmers, too many farmers don't respect themselves as entrepreneurial business people that are the the first, I'm going to say the first responders to natural resources. You know, you can't turn the whole country into national parks and wilderness areas and 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 bureau BLM land. Okay. Somebody has to produce food, and farmers are the first responders in that need of our of our age. And they need to hold their heads high. They need to get a suit and tie and hold themselves proud and quit saying i'm just a farmer. Have you ever had a heart surgeon come up to you and say, you know, i'm i'm doctor, you know, uh doctor Bill Jones and and i'm i'm uh, i'm just a heart surgeon. You know, i'm just some deprecating, you know, condiz- no. Uh, I'm a heart surgeon, you know. Well, we can just say i'm a farmer, you know, and we need to say that as well and and look at this profit to where we 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 we're, we're looking at it from a from a profit uh angle and and, um, and make our decisions that will move us in that direction. So we promote that, and, and that in turn attracts young people. We get, we get young people with master's degrees, all sorts of things. Nobody ever told me I could actually make a living on a farm. You're the first person that actually told me and got me excited about making a living on a farm. And I think, I think if, we, if we do that, we'll have plenty of people to, to carry this forward in all of our little speedboats.
0: Well, I feel inspired. Uh Dwayne, you want to you want to start a farm together? <laughs> no, no, it's it's fascinating. I'm already there. Yeah, yeah Dwayne's already... already doing it. Um yeah, and you know you're absolutely right. Like it, you know, I I went to school, bachelor's and masters, both, both in agronomy and soils and you know, you develop a fair degree of of technical proficiency and in, in the science side of all this, but there is definitely a lack of uh, inspiration and, and motivation coming from, well, at academia as as well as society at large to to push people into actually doing it to, you know, to getting out there and and really producing something. But um, you know, thank goodness, you guys there at, there at Polyface are actually taking people in, uh, taking, you know, those bright eyed, bushy tailed young folks that are ready to try to make a difference and and letting them get their hands dirty. I mean, this is, you know, a big part of the reason that I chose this as well. And and unfortunately I I do spend a decent amount of time behind a computer, but on the days that I do get to get out there and get my hands dirty, I I always appreciate it. Yeah. So shifting gears uh, uh, here, you know, we, we may have touched on this a little bit already. Um, but you know, to to get back into the the diversity of of your operation, you know, I think you've probably got, safe to say you've got you know, nine or ten different irons in the fire there. And, um, you know, whenever we talk about the the differences between that type of operation and and the, you know, cash grain farmer that's, you know alternating back and forth between corn and soybeans every year, you know, I think that science has allowed us to get incredibly efficient in, in that type of system. You know, we have the, if you're, anybody's curious, you know, check out that Penn State agronomy guide. You know, there's umpteen years of research that have gone into developing specific recommendations for for fertilizer and and what are the best herbicides for weed control and planting rates and row spacing and, and every other piece of agronomic knowledge that allows us to squeeze as much efficiency out of a piece of land as we can. But, you know, inevitably, and and I, I must say, coming from the South, the the pest pressure here in the Northeast is not quite as bad. But generally speaking, across the United States, it's, it's fair to say that, you know, those monocrop systems are vulnerable to pest outbreaks. You know, whether that be, you know, that, Herbicide-resistant weeds, you know the mare's tail, the Palmer amaranth, the, the the ragweed. You know we've got multiple herbicide resistance going on. You know we've got really tough to control insects that come through, and 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 disease outbreaks that just seem to be more of a function of the vulnerability of those monocrop systems. So. I don't know if it's so much of like a a merging the existing system with the type of system you have, but how do we, how do we, how do we make our systems, you know, more resilient to, to these really harmful and and damaging pest outbreaks? Because if you don't have, um, you know, multiple things going on at the same time, like you said to, you know, don't be afraid of profit. Don't be afraid of Maintaining a diverse set of revenue streams. If you're just relying on the one thing, um, you're in a really vulnerable position.
2: <laughs> well, it it warms my heart to hear you say that, and I all I can say is Amen. You are vulnerable, and so if we say farming at its core is a biological process and not a mechanical process, if we just start there and say this is fundamentally about biological systems, not mechanical. Then that moves us to a, a kind of a, a philosophical place where we where we start asking questions like so so how does biology work how does nature work a, a, as a whole and, and rather than rather than parting it out like, like a mechanical like a you know, like like parts on an assembly line and and Western science Western linear reductionist science is extremely good at looking at parts of things. But it's not real good at looking at the relationship of things in in, in the whole picture because because it's it, it it's um it's too hard to run experiments uh, with that many that many uh, options you know you if you want to run an experiment you want to compare this to that you know not twenty things it's it there, there are too many variables you know and, and so so Western science is not given to A lot of variables. So you want to get your variables down as low as possible. And, you know, I appreciated your, your, you're talking a little, a little bit ago about the call you got about the guy that was asking if he should use this fertilizer. And you said, we'll do it on a little bit and make a, and make a, a, an experiment. My goodness. Some of the things that we do here have been the result of a simultaneous group of experiments that we did all at one time, very, very small uh, because every place is different. And, and uh, you know what the, the recipe that works in Minnesota might not work in Pennsylvania and might not work in Alabama. And so doing these small experiments are, are really good. And, and in fact, that's the way nature does things. Nature, nature doesn't jump off a cliff. Adaptation, adaptation is is incremental, very incremental um, uh, o- over time. What we're looking at is we're looking at, at, na- at nature's template, and what we see is, A, you know, there's no waste stream, so everything that's a waste over here becomes an input over here, and, and nature runs on carbon. It doesn't run on 10-10-10 chemical fertilizer. Nature minimizes tillage if there's any tillage at all, very limited tillage. And so, if you know the work of, for example, you know Rodale there in uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, the Rodale, they, they've invented these uh, these cover crop crimpers and things like that to try to try to reduce uh, tillage, and and that doesn't mean replacing tillage with herb, with herbicides. It's it's actually cover cropping with smother cover cropping and smother cropping with you know with with uh, new you know new types of machinery, to, to, totally new types of machines, all that kind of thing can be done, but, but each of these, you know, we have to do our experiments. And, and the problem is, here's the problem. All of the salesmen, I think I read somewhere that 80% of all the decisions farmers make are based on the advice of a salesman. And, and the problem is that if you go to a, if you go to a a farm show and you go to the trade show, you've got all these booths of things, you know, I've got this material, this material, this material, and you get their brochure, you look at the little video and, you know, you've decided we're going to spend, you know, $20,000 on, 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 on um, agronomic supplements for the year. Uh, We've got it. We've got enough money. We can spend $20,000 on, on uh, soil supplements for the year. And so you go visit all these people that got all this different stuff. And you go with your beloved back to your hotel room, you spread out all these brochures and you say, well, who who are we going to, who are we going to buy from? And you finally, you look at each other and you say, you know, I kind of like that guy down there in, in booth 57. Let's just, let's just get our stuff from him. And and that's the way farmers make decisions. We're not making decisions in real time with experiments on our own places. And goodness, in the last year, we've we've tried some some algae algae foliars, some fish emulsion foliars. Uh, this year, we're going to try a, a a feed additive called um, what's it called uh, OGS Organic Gut Solution. It's a biochar derivative. Um, you know what? A lot of this stuff we end up never using. It, it actually doesn't do anything. But at least, at least we've given ourselves the confidence to say yes or no definitively. We're not just, you know, we're not just out here uh kicking tires, uh asking, you know, does this work or not? We're actually trying it on an acre, on a on a half acre, and um and and, and you know, even it can be multi-years and you're you know, you're seeing what what actually works. And I think that's how you come to this this multiple enterprise thing that we've come to is, you know, so we wanted to to do compost. Well, how do you do compost? Well, we we use pigs to turn our compost. Right now, as as we're doing this today, we've got pigs out there turning hundreds of tons of compost um, uh, using, we call them piggerators, rather than using, you know, uh, machinery and petroleum to make windrow compost piles. We're letting pigs do all that work. So I'm doing this uh podcast with you while the pigs are out there working and they always show up on time. They never sue you. They're very happy. And what a retirement program. When you're done with them, you eat them. You know, you you eat your own machinery and 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 you have you have appreciating machinery to do your work instead of depreciating machinery to do your work. And so it's trying to, it's it's looking at these problems that we have, these these things we need done, saying, How does nature fix those? Like, like herbivores, you know, uh, uh, nature doesn't doesn't you know shoot up cows, with uh, whatever herbivores, with ivermectin to keep you know grubicides and parasites away. How does nature do it? Well, they they have the egret that lands on the on the rhinoceros's nose. They have the the you know the 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 the, uh, the cowbirds and all this that follow the wildebeest in the Serengeti. So we follow the cows with eggmobiles. And these are portable hen houses. The chickens scratch out the cow patties, eat out the fly larva, sanitize the paddock, eat the grasshoppers and the crickets and the bugs that compete with the cows for, for feed, turn that into eggs. So instead of buying uh, buying uh, parasiticides, we simply sell $100,000 worth of eggs as a byproduct of the pasture sanitation program. So, so it's trying to look at how would nature solve this? and and keep keep the intellectual capacity the economics and the energy how could it how can it stay here on the farm and so that we we actually view ourselves not as a not as a a, a factory input output but rather as a great big
1: solar driven uh reservoir with as small a leak as possible that's awesome you 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 mentioned before the the lack of needing to purchase fertilizer inputs and you just alluded to the example of the the chickens taking care of the fly larva there and the the reduced inputs that 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 requires uh can you talk to us about other types of pesticides or not using those types of pesticides at at polyface farm
2: well Well, we, we don't we don't use any of it we don't use any pesticides herbicides insecticides grubicides parasiticides chemical fertilizers we don't use any of it and as i mentioned you know we have we have a thousand head of cattle we have you know we're growing whatever seven eight hundred hogs a year twenty to thirty thousand chickens turkeys and we might call a veterinarian once every two or three years and that would be primarily for a, you know, for a calving problem that's beyond our, you know, our, our ability to 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 help deliver a calf. But otherwise, um, you know, we just don't have sick animals. What we do spend money on though, so we, we don't have a, a veterinarian, we literally do not spend a penny on vet services basically ever. What we do spend money on is uh, seaweed, uh, kelp as a, as a mineral supplement. So you know we have all these animals other people are buying pink eye you know vaccines all this stuff we don't we don't have it we just don't have it but we do spend thousands of dollars on um on dehydrated seaweed kelp which has very very high iodine in it um it's 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 the number one um it's the number one plant with iodine number one organic provenance of iodine on the on the earth um, and all of the all of the things that affect an, a, a a cow uh, from the neck forward, okay? So so eye edema, uh, ringworm, pink eye, warts, all that stuff that affects the face of a, of a cow is all iodine deficiency. And so, um, and so by feeding this uh this this kelp this uh, seaweed, uh, we you know we don't have any of those issues. Right now, I can't tell you whether it's cheaper to treat the problems or buy the or buy the mineral. I, I can't tell you, that. but I can tell you from from an emotional an emotional joy standpoint, it's really nice to almost never have to deal with anything sick. Uh, that that's what's nice, and so I'll put my money on on the mineral. Um, you know, uh, any time of day. And, and so so this is you know this is kelp we use you know we use uh we don't buy iodized salt we we get the the good stuff the uh redmond you know redmond salt as a, as a mineral uh you know we use uh fur trail company in Bainbridge, Pennsylvania we use their uh poultry neutral balancer religiously uh I could only say cultishly uh but we found that 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 a, a lot of especially here on the east a lot of our livestock is mineral deficient because our soils are deficient because they've been they've been plowed and cropped for a long time. You head out up to you know North Dakota, Minnesota, Wyoming, um you know they they have plenty of mineral because they're dry, they're cold and they haven't been cropped to death. Here, we've been cropped to death and and so a lot of our minerals have been depleted and so we're going to have to bring, bring them back from the ocean. And, um, you know, and and rebuild some of our minerals. And if the cow needs it, she she metabolizes it. If she doesn't, she excretes it in her urine and that mineralizes the field. So we're okay that way as well.
0: So you mentioned not really having to use any pesticide, which is, I mean, just fascinating. I can't imagine how much money, you know, folks might be able to save because uh, I know it's a huge, huge input cost, you know, and there's so many different types that you have to have in a row crop situation. To drill in specifically, like on the weed thing, I guess you've got, you know, clean pastures, you know, free of all the things that typically plague, you know, plague people, like the, the Canada thistles and the horse nettles and the, the multiflora rose and all that stuff. Do you think that, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a variety of different things that are contributing to the lack of weed pressure there, but um, do you think it has a lot to do with the, the different types of animals that you have running across the pasture?
2: Well, No, I didn't say we didn't have weeds.
0: Okay. Okay.
2: (laughs) Uh, let's, 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 let's back up a minute. Um, uh, now I I will, I will tell you that we don't have, we don't have any more weeds than anybody else. In fact, I would even say we have fewer weeds than most people who spray every year, but that said we, um, I mean, let me tell you multiflora rose. I mean, that's on my, like, like I have, I have perpetual jihad on multiflora rose, uh, I mean, that, that is an autumn olive. I guess you have autumn olives there in, uh, Pennsylvania as well. Uh, these are all invasives and, and I, yeah, well, you know, I don't, I don't like them at all. I don't like, certainly I don't like multiflora rose. Uh, but, but all of these things, they are, um, first of all, if, if a plant, if, if a plant can be eaten by an animal, I don't consider it a weed. So things like, like um uh, milkweed chicory uh, blueweed uh, 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 burdock uh, sourdough, uh things like that the cows readily eat there's and, and remember we're moving these animals we're moving these cows in tight blocks uh, so they're not they're not out here continuous grazing we're you know we're putting we're moving uh you know 400 head on you know on um, on, on, on three acres for a day. Okay. We move them every day. So we we call this mob stocking, herbivorous, solar conversion, lignified carbon sequestration, fertilization. And, uh, and so we're, we're moving them, you know, paddock to paddock every day. And, and so when you do that, they graze more aggressively and less, uh, less picky. Uh, you know, they, and so they eat things that, that normally they wouldn't eat. We we've watched them eat the blossoms right off of thistles. We've watched them eat all sorts of things that normally, you know, they would never eat. So, so this, this mob stocking, uh, really changes the way the animal and the plant interact. And, and so what do we do with things like, you know, multiflora rows around the fence lines and things like that? We, uh, we chop them out. We, we, we have mattocks and, um, and we we go by hand, and fortunately we don't have very many because the best the best protection is a thick sod, and so so we we don't have very many, but um, but we do we do hand chop by you know a chainsaw we you know we push stuff out and, and and we rotate you know we rotate what we do in the different fields from year to year. So one year maybe we won't make hay in this field; we just graze it. Well, like 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 right now. Uh, Of course, we're in the spring, we've already made one rotation with our grazing, you know, we, we started, we started uh, grazing back in February, uh, because our grass comes on faster than most people because it's on, you know, it's, it's an energy equilibrium, but we'll, 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 we'll rotate, you know, where we make hay and where we do things where we start grazing to try to diversify, you know, what's on the field when they're on the field from year to year to stimulate diversity, we have a tremendous diversity in our fields. But, um, but virtually everything in them is edible. And I love to go out. I mean, plantain, plantain, dandelions. Uh, cows love dandelions. Cows love plantain. I mean, they're, they're actually, um, uh, they're called Forbes and they're actually medics. They, I mean, like uh, wide leaf plantain is a blood cleanser. All right. And, and so, um, so there's all sorts of herbal advantages, benefits uh, when you have this diversified uh, pasture uh, we view, now we don't like multiflora. There are weeds that we don't like. Multiflora rose, olive. no, we don't like those. Uh, Canada thistle, no, I don't like that. Cows really, you know, but, but, but if the cow will eat it, I don't consider it a weed.
0: I think that that animal piece of it definitely does change the perception of, of how you look at some of these plants. And, uh, you know, they say a, a weed is a plant out of place, right? But, if it's in a place where a cow will right. eat it, then we can look at it differently. But I'm glad that we can all commiserate here on, on the multiflora rose bit. But we don't want to take, <laughs> you know, too much of your time. Um, so we'll kind of try to wind it down here and try to get some parting words of wisdom for you for folks in the agricultural community. You know, you you touched on some of the larger, unfortunate macroeconomic type of events that are going on right now. Russia, Ukraine, you know, price uncertainty with, with fertilizer. And, you know, there's seems to be a, a lot of things to, uh, other than the normal usual suspects and challenges that a farmer might up, op, uh, mm-hmm. farmer's operation might encounter. There's all these extenuating things. So regardless of what type of farmer you are, right. You know, if you have, a an operation with sheep and ducks and turkeys and rabbits and chickens, or if you're just growing some, some bell peppers and tomatoes or whatever you might be doing, you know, what, what parting words of wisdom and encouragement can, can you offer folks in the agricultural community?
2: A couple things I would just say uh, for sure, diversify your, do everything you can to diversify your income streams. Do a, do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of the other, and the, the cumulative effect will, you know, will be will be good. Putting all your eggs in one basket is a is a pretty big risk. And so, spreading your risk out among some other things is is extremely beneficial. Uh, I would say number two is do what you can to get retail dollar. You know, if if you can take anything you produce to its retail, to you know, to its final customer, that'll move you to a better economic economic place and you'll suddenly start developing a community of cheerleaders there there's a huge um uh antipathy right now between i think between most farmers and and urban people farmers think the urban people are they're out to get us you know they're passing these regulations and you know and, and they're out to get us and the question is well who's gonna who's gonna reach out first and um if you've got any interest, I mean, it might even be goodness. Um, some some grapevine wreaths, maybe you goodness. You know, people. If you're taking down an old barbed wire fence, you know how much people sell a pretty barbed wire wreath for for a ornament on a door. I mean, you know, it's amazing what you can what you can do. So so think about something that you can offer neighbors and, and, and friends that um, that you can do on your own place. And that, that will suddenly bring you face-to-face and, and conversation-to-conversation with people who aren't farmers, who, who love you, who love you. And, and, and farmers, we, we need to feel some love these days. We need, we need people to, to tell us, man, I appreciate you. I appreciate what you're doing. And, and, um, and, and right now, farmers need that as much as money. Uh, just to be encouraged and, and inspired to you know th- that were that were valuable and were needful in the you know in the culture and so you know those are just a couple things that I was and, and the final thing I would say is uh, and this this is this I've been using this lately I I saw it in the last year and I try to use it all the time to try to keep me from forgetting it and that is um, whatever you least want to do right now is probably what you need to do most. So if you if you make a list of what you've been putting off, what have you been putting off that you need to do? That list will probably tell you what you need to do most right now. And I find that very challenging and convicting for me, and actually very helpful because you know, we all twenty four seven. We've only got twenty four hours in a day. We're all busy. We've all got a full schedule. You know what do you put your attention on? And, and it, you know, and identifying that weak link, what gives me the best return for my investment of time and money and energy, you know, making that decision, prioritizing that list is often the hardest thing that a farmer can do. And so that little thing uh, of, of uh, whatever you least want to do is probably the most needful thing to do, I found uh, personally very, very helpful.
0: I think that you're absolutely right on that. I just wanted to say, you know, I as a as a big fan of uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson, he talks about the Knights of the Round Table and, and King Arthur, and he talks about how King Arthur wanted his his Knights of the Round Table to enter the part of the forest that appeared the darkest to them. So it just you know it goes <laughs> yeah. all the way back to that you know those ancient stories like. That really is oftentimes yeah. the right answer is exactly what you do not want the answer to be. So you got to look at the part of the forest that seems the darkest to you.
1: Hope my wife's not listening, Joel, because if she you know listens to this now, obviously we're recording here in the beginning of April. But whatever you least want to do right now, you should do most. in In our case, she would tell me, you better let's get those farm taxes done. You know, tax season—the deadline's coming up, and I've been kicking yeah. that can down the road for a while. So that's my that's my yeah. personal story here on whatever you least want to do right now. But it is—it's time to get those things done and over with. Yeah, um, yeah, Joel. You know, we've had a pleasure talking talking with you here today. If folks want to learn more about you, about Polyface Farm, about your principles and and your theories where where can they go to get more information
2: so we have a we have a pretty comprehensive website it's polyface farms i don't have any personal social media presence i mean i do i do a blog put i do a blog i do a podcast called beyond labels uh i've got numerous curriculum all this stuff on the website polyface farms just type in p-o-l-y it'll probably come up uh polyfacefarms.com and uh, it's comprehensive. It it, it it tells you every. It, it's got all my books. It's got it's got uh, you know events we're going to have. It, it's all there. So so the the way through me is through um, polyface mentioning taxes because the less I exist is better. Uh, polyface exists, but but I don't exist. That's why I like
1: the IRS to think of it. Joel, you called yourself earlier uh, early on the, the lunatic farmer and. I, I think we all learned something here today from, from the Lunatic Farmer at, at Polyface Farm. I want to say thanks, thanks for taking the opportunity to join us here today. We greatly appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having me. It's been uh, it's been a delight. You guys are are clearly your heart is is as big as the world. And uh, thank you for taking on the, the the podcast ministry that you have. We're uh here, we're open, we love visitors and um uh, we're glad to glad to see anybody that comes.
0: I have a feeling I'm going to end up in SWOOP Virginia one of these days, so be on the lookout for me.
1: Good. All right, thanks folks. We'll see you next time on Agronomy Highlights.